From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. There are 10 firearm bills currently in Ohio's legislature, five that we oppose and five that we support, including a surprise pro-gun bill by two Democrats. And of course, there's issue one, which is causing a major freakout by the left and the media who have been lying like crazy to generate opposition. So we'll set the record straight on four of the biggest lies they're telling. And that's what we're going to talk about on this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined by Rob Sexton, BFA's Legislative Affairs Director. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dean. It's great to be back. And Rob, I'm not just welcoming you to a podcast. I'm welcoming you to the 100th podcast for Keeping Bear Radio. How about that? That's great, man. It's hard to believe it's been that many already. Yeah, I, I know. I, I remember when we recorded episode one, I was still trying to figure out all the equipment and how it works. We were in my basement back in January 2021. It was during the whole pandemic thing. Everything was shut down. And uh, we were talking about how we had just repealed Ohio's duty to retreat, which is a pretty great way to start off a podcast. And of course, here we are about two and a half years later, and we're at episode 100. It's not like we're competing with Joe Rogan. You know, we've got a pretty good, solid, you know, listener base. We get a lot of great feedback. People tell me all the time about how they enjoy it. And so I guess we'll just keep chugging along and trying to keep people informed about what's going on in the world of gun rights. I'm, I'm surprised. One, 100 episodes, kind of, it's a little scary on how fast uh, time goes, right? It really is. And, and I have to give you credit for, you know, it, it, a lot of folks don't really ever have to think about what it takes to generate that much content. And so the fact that you've been able to keep this thing rolling and keep it not just topical, but, you know, interesting. Let's face it, podcasts are entertainment. And we need to be providing content that's relevant. And I think you've done a great job with that. Well, talking about entertainment, before we get into the meat of this podcast, I really want to ask you about your big hunting trip to Argentina. You'd been planning that for a long time, I think well over a year. And you finally went and you got a couple of trophies, didn't you? I did. It was actually two years. It was in May of 21 in which I won a trip with a raffle, the Sportsman's Alliance Spring Fling. I bought one of their big raffle packages, and, you know, I didn't expect to win anything. And lo and behold, I got drawn for this hunt, which was a hunt for some critters in Argentina. And then I wound up taking a close friend and then my oldest son. And, of course, we couldn't resist. We had to turn it into something bigger, right? So we wound up hunting Red Stag, which is sort of the premium big game in Argentina. And uh, we shot some other uh, pretty cool-looking critters. And then we capped it off with two days of dove hunting, which, of course, is just 
if you're a bird hunter, Argentina dove hunting is sort of the pinnacle bird hunting spot in the whole world. And that was just a great way to finish it off. So how did you find the whole process of dealing with firearms in another country and just dealing with all that? Did you take your own or did you rent them there or how did you handle that? So I'll start off by saying, I wish I had rented theirs, but I could not. So once I won the trip, my kids and my wife and my parents, they all teamed up and they bought me a really nice Weatherby 300 Winchester Magnum. And so once they give you that, you know, you're taking that gun. And so then I invested in a real nice scope for it. I think you and I were looking at scopes together at the NRA show. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah. In Texas. And I bought a Vortex scope uh, based on that visit. So they charged you $300 to rent a rifle. They said they were going to charge $300 to bring one into the country. And I would say this first off, it turned out to be $500, not 300. And then I found out that a hundred was what the government charged. And the other 400 was for the facilitator to get me in and out of airports. And if that sounds expensive, I'll just simply say this. I don't know what I would have done without the guy. Uh, they took me into the bowels of Buenos Aires International Airport. Like if you were going to haul somebody off and kill them and leave them someplace, this would have been the spot. I mean, we were way back in the dark in cinder block rooms with guys that didn't speak any English. And it was like that everywhere I went. So I, I flew from Buenos Aires to Santa Rosa. And then later I flew from Cordoba to back to Buenos Aires. So ultimately I had four airports to deal with in Argentina. Everyone hour and a half to get my gun in or get my gun out. We also ran into roadside checks. And once they saw the gun case, you know, they wanted to know about that. And I had paperwork I had to carry with me and I was counseled and, uh, I followed it. Don't, don't, don't go anywhere without this paperwork about that rifle. And so sure enough, you know, uh, I had to account for the ammunition I took and it was just a great reminder for all the fear that we have here. We still have it awfully good. I was, I was, as you were saying that I was just thinking that about how, how uh, you felt when you came back. I've been to some third world countries, not for hunting purposes, but I, I remember repeatedly feeling like when I got back, man, everything is greener. Everything is nicer. I'm just so <laughs> great. Like I want to bend down and, and kiss the ground literally because I think a lot of people in this country who complain about so much, they don't know what they're talking about until they've gone, not, not to the touristy spots, Right, to sit on an, on a nice white beach. But I mean, go to the bad spots of other third world countries and then come back and realize how good you really have it. Well, that boy, that's the truth. And I have to share one other non-gun related story with you that really drives this point home. So we had a day in Buenos Aires before we flew to Santa Rosa. And a lot of folks don't know. I certainly did not know. Buenos Aires is larger than New York City. So we hired a tour guide to show us all the, you know, neat stuff in New York, in uh, Buenos Aires. And his name is Fernando. And while he's driving us, he said, hey, do you folks have a problem with inflation? And we, you know, we commenced bellyaching. Oh, my gosh, you wouldn't believe it's almost 8%. It's awful. It's been <laughs> going on now for two years. And yeah. he says 8%. He said, yeah. And he said, is it like, like 8% annually? Well, of course. 
Okay, he says it's 2% here per week. And I just I, I let that sink in, you know, 2% per week. That doesn't mean stuff is going up 8% per month because each, each, each week increment compounds on top of the next one. 2% per week. It is so much that the restaurants have little round stickers where the prices are supposed to be because they hand write meal prices on about a 10-day rotating period. And he confessed that people in Argentina, they don't save pesos, which is their monetary unit. They don't save them for the future because they're not worth anything. Instead, they save American dollars. So I'm not saying to our listeners that we should be okay with, you know, 7.5% inflation. To the contrary. But boy, I tell you what, 2% per week was just really stunning to me. Yeah. I, I just think that we're, and, I, and I'm not trying to be insulting. I, I just think that a lot of people are really spoiled in this country. We're so successful. We forget how successful we are, even when we're complaining about something we think is just awful. You know, compare it to other countries. And if you've been on, you know, if you've been to Europe or whatever, You've probably been to touristy areas. You really haven't been to parts of the world that do not compare favorably to the United States. And, you know, that those trips really changed my thinking entirely about how we have it. And I complain a heck of a lot less, Rob, than I, than I used yeah. to, I can tell you that. Well, I, I think, you know, I, I was prepared for the delays getting my gun uh, in and around the country. But the roadside checks, I got to admit, that freaked me out. I mean, we were, we were motioned over to the side of the road by the local policia and, you know, then our driver is showing all sorts of paperwork and then they saw that gun case and, and, you know, that, 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 you know, you're just, you're thinking, am I going to wind up in a jail in the middle of nowhere because of a paperwork error error? And, uh, yeah, I was thankful to be back to the U S although I will say I never felt unsafe. The trip was fabulous. The hunting was great. We, we really do have it good, and that was a great reminder. Yeah. Okay, so, Rob, uh, let's talk about firearm legislation. I want to review the bills currently in the 135th Assembly. Why most of these bills, frankly, are just not moving, with one exception. And then we'll discuss the big issue of the moment, issue one. So, yes. Rob, um, here we are, mid-July. The session began in January, and gun bills are not moving. I think the two big reasons are, you know, that big split in the House over the over the speakership, which sort of threw a wrench into the works. And then, of course, issue one now, is that pretty much it, or is there anything else? Uh, yeah, the budget. You know, the budget uh, took longer and was more complicated than in recent years, and part of that was due to the split in the House, as you talk about. Because, you know, when the state budget is done, it has, you know, parts to it every single time. The governor has his version, then the House does a version, then the Senate does a version, then there's a compromise version, and then, you know, ultimately the governor signs it. Well, in this case, you had another entity involved in the negotiations in that there were really two sets of factions of the House that had to be satisfied. And it just made it all uh, elongated, you know, that I think they actually went past June 30th, which they're not supposed to be able to do. and. Uh, and that just complicated the process. So between the House split, the long budget, and the legislative fight to put issue one on the ballot, I think it just sort of sucked all the other oxygen out of the room. 
So let's go over first uh, the bills we support. And we've got a page. We just call it our legislation page. If you're on a desktop or a laptop computer, go to the website, buckeyefirearms.org, and you'll see the red navigation bar. Click on legislation, and you're right there on the page. We always divide everything up into the bills we support and the bills we oppose. So the first bill, and we'll just go here in order, HB 51, enact the Second Amendment Preservation Act. This is basically an updated sanctuary bill. We've talked about this in previous podcasts. It's gotten a little bit of action for hearings, but it's still in committee. I don't know if we have really anything to say about that, Rob. Only that it's complicated, right? So so you've got legislators on that committee who very much want to prevent the federal government from interfering with our firearm rights. At the same time, the state of Ohio does a lot of cooperation with the federal government at the law enforcement level. So how do you close them out in some respects and still allow for collaboration and others? And that's brought the committee to a halt so far to figure out a way to accomplish this. And then we have HB 186 to exempt firearm safety devices from sales tax. This is a a really interesting bill. It's had no hearings. Uh, it is in a committee. The reason it's really interesting is it's sponsored by two Democrats. This kind of yes. took us by surprise. You know, I I did one of those like cartoon double takes, you know, when uh, when I saw this and had to confirm, you know, are these guys really Democrats? Because it, it looks like an okay bill. And so we examined it very closely, even though it's a really simple bill. All it does is exempt from sales and use tax firearm safety devices. So in other words, you know, like gun safes, you buy a big $2,000 safe and you're not paying any tax on that. Well, I mean, we support that. There's no, there are no mandates. It's not saying you have to lock things up. And interestingly, both of the Democrats sponsoring this contacted us and you had a meeting with them, Rob. I did. And, you know, Dean, to your point, you know, we really took two, three, four looks at this thing. Ultimately, we decided to support the bill. And the reason for that is simple. It is a fact that we almost never get Democrat support for pro-gun bills. So every now and then, when one of them sticks their head up and actually comes up with something that we like, you know, we could easily say, oh, we don't want to work with you. We don't trust you. But the fact is, if they have a good bill, then we ought to get behind it. And as you say, they're not requiring anybody to build, uh, to, to buy anything. But if you do buy, then you, you know, you get a break on your sales tax for a gun safe or, you know, other more mobile storage devices or the like. And I, I, I just don't see anything wrong with that. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. And, and they were surprised that we were okay with it and willing to meet and all of that. Cause I guess their take was, wow, we thought you guys just worked with Republicans and well, that's usually true. And uh, we used to work with Democrats back in the day when yeah. Democrats would, you know, we had some, we had a governor, Strickland, who was a pretty good gun guy. He might've been bad on other things, but he worked with us on gun stuff. One of the best governors to work with. And, you know, here we are today and it's, it's almost always split among along partisan lines. So they were as surprised as we are, you know. Yeah. So uh, at the moment, the way it's written, we sponsor it. Of course, if anything goes haywire, and I talked to you about this, you know, if they add in a mandate 
something gets amended, you know, we can always just withdraw our support and say, no, nope, you know, that's, that's not the way we're going to go. But hey, if you're buying a gun safe or some other safety device, why not save on the, on the tax? You know, that's, that's a nice little savings. Right. And then it's also, I think, for our listeners to feel safe about this, the bill is not under the control of the two Democrats who sponsored it. The bill is under the control of the House committee. And that's, of course, controlled overwhelmingly by the Republicans who are much more likely to prevent you know, anything going into it that would make it go haywire. So for us, I don't think there was any risk in just telling the truth. This is a pretty good idea. Then we have another tax bill here. This is a, a double bill or a companion uh, bills, HB 189, SB 124. I looked at them. I mean, they're word for word, the, the same bill. And this one's by Republicans. And this is to, you know, exempt firearms and ammunition from sales tax. So it's the same kind of idea. Now, this one's a longer bill, if I remember correctly. And there's a lot of tax language in here. And it just makes my brain melt. But you know, same idea. If you buy firearms or ammunition, you don't pay sales tax, right? Right. That's right. And there's one major caveat to the bill, and that is to try to persuade uh, gun companies to move to the state of Ohio. And so there, you know, this bill provides some tax incentives to relocate companies to Ohio, which is, you know, that's an angle that the Democrat bill didn't explore. The Democrat bill was all about, can we incentivize you to buy storage devices? And the Republican bill does that, but it also says, hey, we'll do that for guns you buy and we'll provide tax incentives if we can get gun companies to move here. And, you know, much like we said before, well, that's a great idea. It hasn't gone anywhere yet. There hadn't been a whole lot of committee hearings since they introduced the bill, to be honest. But I'll also say this. The other element of these tax bills is that the legislators who write the budget, they have to figure out how they're going to replace the, the money that the tax would provide. So they're a little more deliberate and slow about passing exemptions from tax. That doesn't mean it won't get done, but it does mean that it's a little more complicated. And there have been no hearings on this yet. And so, you know, uh, again, I, I think a lot of these will probably start getting hearings after the election, and you know, people can start paying attention to st stuff like this. Uh, the other thing with this bill, we just want to assure those who are maybe are a little more savvy about these things, and they're thinking, "Oh, what about Pittman Robertson and and those funds that are used for conservation and all of that?" That that is not affected by this at all, right, Rob? It's not at all. This only affects Ohio sales tax, and Pittman Robertson is a federal excise tax, and so. Uh, this this bill, if it is enacted, will have no impact on that program. And then we move to SB 32, and this is a Tim Schaefer bill uh, to provide civil immunity for self-defense for nonprofits. So I, you know, this is a what I call a fix-it bill. There's already civil immunity for other stuff related to this. And they really just didn't deal with nonprofits when the law was originally written. And there was a similar bill in the last session, and, and this bill is here. And they're really just trying to clean it up and make sure that if there's uh, self-defense, that people are protected you know, wherever they are, and they're not excluded just because there was some oversight in the writing. So I'm not sure that it's had no hearings. In fact, I think this one is not even in committee yet. Uh, hasn't been assigned to a committee. 
So, you know, we'll just keep watching that one. Uh, but, of course, we support it. SB, SB 58 to prohibit requiring firearms liability insurance. Now, this is a Terry Johnson bill. This is the exception I talked about because it's actually passed the Senate and it's in a House committee and it's had a couple of hearings. So, you yeah. know, Terry Johnson is the man. You know, when he sponsors a bill, he can make it move. And this is the only bill that we have on our list that's really gone anywhere. Yeah, we testified in favor of this bill. And as you say, you know, when it comes to gun bills, if Terry Johnson's name is on it, and there's a good chance it's going to make uh, a lot of progress. Uh, the genesis of this bill, there were a few towns. Fresno, California is the one that comes to mind for me, I think, or maybe San Jose. But they required gun owners to have to, have to you know, purchase special liability insurance to own a firearm. And so... That spread to a couple other localities around the country. And Johnson is a big believer in, you know, hey, let's spend resources building the defenses so that we don't have to fight as hard when the bad guys come calling. This bill is a great example of that. It, it just basically says you can't do that in Ohio. And uh, as you say, Johnson's already shepherded it through the Senate. And of course, we're providing assistance to get it done in the House. The only other bill that we have listed on our support list was actually that joint resolution two and that's turned into issue one and we're going to get to that in a minute so we really don't need to say any anything about that now there's several bills here that we oppose we can probably just lump them all together none of these have really gone anywhere other than a sponsor hearing there's one to roll back stand your ground and to reimpose duty to retreat there's one to enact extreme risk protection orders, in other words, red flag. There's one for requiring firearms to be locked up. All three of these have had a sponsor hearing, but no hearings beyond that. There's one to require gun trigger locks. That's in committee, but has had no hearings. And then the really bad one, uh, this, this is a, a dual bill or a companion bill, one in the House, one in the Senate, to repeal statewide preemption. That's had a sponsor hearing, but it hasn't really gone anywhere. This one's the nasty one because if we repeal statewide preemption, we basically wipe out all the progress we've made for at least 20 years because every city, village, and township can pass their own gun laws. Right, right. And of course, you know, you've said this many times on this podcast. You know, preemption is the, that's the brass ring for us. And can you just imagine what it would look like driving across Cuyahoga County or Hamilton County or Franklin County with all the different burbs having various gun laws? And think about the mentality of these big city mayors. They're not just going to have those on the books, but they're going to be pulling people over for that stuff. And it's a one-way ticket to jail. So preemption is just absolutely the most important item uh, for gun owners to always want to protect. Fortunately, you know, the both chambers of the legislature overwhelmingly pro-gun. And so these bills have no chance, but it, it does give us something to consider, you know, in our daily lives, we run across people, you know, you guys never work with Democrats. You're always so Republican. Well, the fact is, as long as Democrats are backing bills to overturn preemption, there ain't a lot of common ground for us to even explore. Yeah, that that's right. Now I, I want to ask you a technical question 
Rob, since uh, you're the specialist in this area, this idea of uh, Bell's getting into a committee and then having a sponsor hearing, is that a rule that that that's at least what has to happen? Or is that just tradition? Or what's the deal with that? Because generally, Bill's, at the very least, will be assigned to some committee and the sponsor will be able to get up and say, here's why I support the bill. It may not go, go any further than that, but it will at least do that. Is that the law? Is that just the rules of the House and the Senate? Or, or how does that work? So it's not the law. It is definitely in the House rules. You know, every session, a lot of folks don't know this inside baseball, but every session, the new General Assembly sits down and hashes out the various rules on how they're going to do business. And it is actually in the House rules that every bill gets one hearing at least. So these committee chairs, they've got really two choices. They can wait till their last few committees of the year and then have like, you know, 27 sponsor testimonies, which is brutal. Or, you know, throughout the year, they can give their, you know, the one hearing that they're required to. And I've seen it done both ways. Right now, it seems like they're trying to handle them as they come in, which I think we should. Those of us who have to attend those hearings, we're very thankful for that approach. The Senate, I'm not sure if it's a rule, but it's definitely a custom. It's an agreed to thing. That's just the way it works. And I think it's, I'm glad you brought that up because we don't ever want people to think that because these bills got a sponsor hearing that they're somehow viable. I really don't think either or any of the bills you just described have any chance at all to move forward. And it's probably the case that after the election, I mean, we're going to have the special election August 8th, and then we have an, a routine election coming up in November that probably if these bills, any bills are going to move, that it's going to be after that. Is that right? Right. I would think so. You know, this is this is an odd year, so it's typically the year when a lot of the heavy lifting gets done in the legislature. And so I would expect, you know, we get through this special election that the that you know, things will resume to some level of normalcy in terms of production out of the, out of the House and Senate. Okay, so let's go to our favorite issue, issue 1. It seems like that's yeah. all we're talking about these days. There's this special election coming up on August 8th. And if our listeners don't have that on their calendar, if you vote in person, get it on your calendar. You got to get out and vote on this one. Um, Early in-person voting has already begun, and you can apply for an absentee or mail-in ballot. There's lots of information on the Ohio Secretary of State's website and at BuckeyeFirearms.org. So, you know, a lot of people have already voted on this. And I just want to bring people up to speed on what issue one is. You know, look, people are... You know, it's summer. The weather is good. Uh, we're, we're getting a lot of sun for Ohio. You know, people are on, on vacation, just like you took your big vacation, and, and not everyone's paying attention to this. But right. issue one would raise the bar on Ohio's Constitution when it comes to making changes. So, Rob, can you just kind of go down the list of the kind of changes that this is going to make if you vote yes on this on the upcoming yeah. special election? So Ohio is one of about half the states that allow for, you know, uh, the citizens to initiate changes in uh, law or the Constitution using the ballot. And then a subset of those will even allow that to be done on the Constitution. State issue one does not stop Ohioans from initiating a ballot issue that changes the law. 
And it does not stop Ohioans from initiating what we call a referendum, which would be our opportunity to reject the law that was just passed by the legislature. But what state issue one does do is it raises the bar for constitutional changes. Current law, you can change our state's constitution. You can change our foundational document that spells out all of our freedoms with just a simple majority, 50.1%. State issue one would raise that to 60%. It also would change the signature gathering requirements. Currently, to qualify such an issue for the ballot, you have to get signatures in 44 of the 88 counties. And state issue one would raise that to, you have to get uh, a small smattering of signatures from every county in order to qualify. And so those are the two major changes. And, and Dean, we can talk about the why, but I thought we'd just start with that's what it does. And it does not stop people from being able to, ha- to go to the ballot to change the law or to reject a law passed by our state house. But it does raise the bar if we're going to change, you know, the foundational document of our Constitution. Yeah, and, and the opposition to this, they're just... You know, they're, they're setting their hair on fire. The, the media has been really heavily against it. It's like every day there's a, an editorial coming out saying, you know, that they, they want people to oppose it. And I'm starting to see signs, yard signs, things like that. The opposition is pretty organized, and it's all the usual suspect. You know, basically, and I was just talking to somebody about this, you know, the way that it works on the left is every group regardless of what their issue is, they all work together on every issue. So they you know, they might as well just have one big group. Unlike on our side, we tend to focus on specific issues and we don't get involved in everything out there. So there's a lot of organization on this and we really need people to get out and vote. And you need to vote yes on issue one if you value your Second Amendment rights. The opposition is really, frankly, lying uh, quite a bit about this. And, and I want to go through just a few of these lies that I'm hearing through the media and through, there's at least one TV ad that's out there. Uh, one is that, that issue one is some radical and undemocratic idea. But that that's a lie because changing a constitution, Rob, is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be more difficult than changing ordinary laws. Most states don't even allow this. They do not allow constitutional amendments by initiative petition. I think it's only like 17 states, if I'm remembering that correctly. All the rest do not even allow this at all. And what was really funny when I found this out, even the Democratic Party in Ohio, to change their bylaws, they require a 60% vote. Even they recognize that you don't change foundational documents and your basic rules and structures and all of that just on a mere 50%, right? That's right. And, and oh my gosh, the hypocrisy goes so deep because unfortunately state issue one is opposed by many of our state's labor unions and they're going on and on about one person, one vote, and this gets rid of majority rule. And just like the state democratic party, these unions to change their foundational documents, their bylaws, it takes 60% or in some cases two-thirds. So I, I just don't understand all the vitriol except for this. They see this as a chance to defeat 
conservatism and gun rights, among other things that are going to be on the ballot in the future. And this is their shot. So I think the most uh, concerning thing to me, D, is their hair is on fire, use the phrase you just used. Their hair is on fire. They're fired up when when these left-wing lunatics, when their feet hit the floor in the morning, they're looking to defeat issue one. And my message to gun owners is this. If you need help connecting how this raising the bar to change the Constitution is directly connected with protecting your gun rights, we can help you do that. Our website is just full of information. But I've told people this, and this is not hyperbole. This is the most important gun rights vote that you'll probably ever take in your lifetime. Well, Rob, I, I, uh, I hope I don't owe you an apology. I didn't mean to trigger you with the phrase hair on fire because I know that that's impossible <laughs> in your case. Uh, or maybe, hey. the, maybe, maybe that's what happened uh, sometime you know, years ago is that your hair was on fire and, and now it's not there. Yeah, that must be it. I will say this. I've been protected a lot by this because my hair is never on fire. Now. <laughs> but but earlier you said, you know, we're not Joe Rogan. And I was just thinking, you know what? I He's bald. I'm bald. Maybe that's where we're going with this podcast. We're going to get as big as Joe Rogan one day. Well, uh, I, I, if we could be like a tenth that size, that would be amazing. So, Rob, we're talking about lies here. And another big lie that is being suggested. They're not really saying this, you know, out loud. But they're sort of suggesting that this destroys the whole citizen-driven ballot initiative idea, and it does nothing of the sort. Issue one deals with amending Ohio's constitution. That's it. It does not affect initiated statutes, in other words, to change Ohio law. It does not affect the referendums to repeal an existing law. Citizens can still directly change Ohio's laws, and and they can work with elected leaders like we do to pass laws. So, you know, it's not like this just goes away. This is only about the Constitution exclusively and nothing else. Yes, that's right. And and you know what? You know, the, the lies of the left on this are so amazing. So most people would agree that New York State is a left-wing safe place. If you're a left winger, New York's a great place to live. They don't allow they don't allow their citizens to change their constitution at all through the initiated statute. Neither does Maryland. Right? So that's just two examples of very, very liberal states that don't allow this. And yet the left and our media are treating this like, you know, we're turning into an autocracy because we're talking about making it harder to change our constitution. And I, I don't see the threat to democracy, but what I do see is a parallel. Our own United States Constitution requires two different steps, both that, are, that include more than a 50% vote in order to support it, to change our United States Constitution. Two-thirds of the U.S. House and two-thirds of the U.S. Senate have to approve the proposal, and then three fourths of the 50 states have to follow suit. And why did the framers do that? Well, I think they felt like, let's spell out the general framework. Let's spell out our freedoms and and let's spell out the boundaries of government. And then laws are supposed to handle everything else. And that would include 
whether or not we're going to have legalized marijuana or whether we're going to have casinos or all those sorts of things. But the left, they're so fired up on this because they can't beat us in the legislature right now. So they know that, you know, that's a dead end for them on gun control. So they see the Constitution as the one place they have a shot. And so issue one makes it harder for them. And so that's why they're so fighting mad. And then there's another lie about empowering wealthy special interests. And the media has made a lot about the fact that there's one guy, one guy who's put some money into this from out of state. It's that uh, Uline guy. If you're in business, you probably get one of those big, thick catalogs from the Uline company. And, you know, they sell paper and, you know, paper clips and pens and just, you know, all office equipment and whatever, just, just everything you can imagine. And the guy's a billionaire, and he has put some money into this. One guy. And we don't yet know who all is supporting on the left-hand side of, of this equation. We're going to find out that pretty soon. But it's kind of a ridiculous claim because, you know, I kind of see this as kind of, you know, we're in a political poker game and progressives are revealing their tell. What they're really afraid of, Rob, is losing the ability to alter the Constitution when they can't get their way through legislation. In other words, they know very well um, what's happening with progressive dark money in recent years. I read an article in Politico and they were saying that just one progressive dark money group raised nearly $390 million in 2020 alone. The New York Times uh, did a report for that same year and said that 15 of the most politically active nonprofit organizations that generally align with the Democratic Party spent more than $1.5 billion, billion with a B, in 2020. So... Maybe issue one opponents are being honest when they say it's all about money, but they're lying when they pretend that the big money is ours rather than theirs. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we all know the big names. Mike Bloomberg is a multi-billionaire who spent millions of dollars trying to take our gun rights away. George Soros, of course, is in in about, you know, conservative-leaning news outlets uh, uh, that highlight the amount of money that he cranks out annually for left-wing causes. They're afraid of issue one because it shuts down their path to bankroll elections. And yep, we got our one guy who's spending some money, Uline. The fact is, issue one is going to pass on the backs of grassroots uh, turnout on election day. And so if you're a gun guy, you need to make sure you vote. If you're a sportsman, you need to make sure you get out and vote. If you run a business, you need to make sure you get out and vote because, you know, the the left is mad about issue one for many reasons. One of them is they want to do a great big minimum wage hike right in the Constitution. Now, we can agree or disagree on whether the minimum wage is high enough right now, but I would hope we could agree on this. Changing minimum wage does not belong in the Constitution. That's something that should be considered in the law so that it can be dealt with, you know, on a frequent basis. And then the last lie I want to talk about, Rob, is this, and this this one just really blows my mind, the idea that issue one ends majority rule and undermines one person, one vote. 
Uh, I, I do not know where they're getting this. This is just hyperbole. Issue one has nothing whatsoever to do with voting rights. Everyone who can vote now will be able to vote when issue one passes. Nothing is going to change about how votes are counted. Again, issue one is exclusively about protecting Ohio as a constitution from being filled with special interest policy that ought to be dealt with in the laws. In fact, I would argue that issue one is all about supporting majority rule because at the moment, as you've pointed out, Ohio could be evenly split on an issue, you know, 50-50, and literally one single vote one way or the other could permanently change our constitution. Issue one would require consensus. In other words, at least 60% of us would need to vote and agree on something before we amend the Constitution. To me, Rob, that ensures that the will of the majority is actually respected. If, if it's going to be in the Constitution, right? I mean, hey, look, we could change the law every single session if we want to based on the current will of the people. But your Constitution should really be an anchor that keeps our foundation in place Changes there should be slow and they should be deliberated. And to use the word you just used, there ought to be some level of consensus. It's not 50 plus one guy, but rather there ought to be some broader support if we're going to change our foundational document. And so issue one, you know, it does two things. It requires a 60% vote. That's consensus. It also requires that the signatures that are gathered, that they ought to come from all 88 counties and not just half the counties. And I think that's reasonable, too. I mean, yes, it's important that majority vote wins, but it's also important that a constitutional change not just be about Cincinnati or Cleveland or Columbus, but about everybody in Ohio from the smallest community to the biggest city. And that last point is really important, Rob. I just today read an article, um, and it was talking about, you know, can Cuyahoga County swing issue one. In other words, can can people in one left-leaning area swing the whole thing? Well, that's another tell right there. They, you know, they don't want to collect signatures from all Ohioans. They want to focus on these big urban areas where yes. they know that they can get the vote or get signatures uh, to get an issue on the ballot. And they know if they have to go to, you know, all of the, the red-leaning counties, which represent Ohioans as well, that it's going to be harder. Our contention is it ought to be hard. This is something that should not be easy to do. It should not be easy to change the Constitution, for goodness sake. And we're, we're just trying to bring attention to this and really get people out to vote. That's what this is all about, Rob. This is a get-out-the-vote election. We need all of our supporters to step up on this one and get out and vote yes or vote early yeah, because the, the, the you can go to your local... Uh, board of election and vote, or you can do mail-in, whatever you choose. Voting has started, and we need all of our listeners, all of our supporters, everyone in Ohio who has a gun and wants to maintain their gun rights, you need to vote yes on this. It's about protecting your rights. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, I've talked to some people who have various quibbles with this, but when it all gets down to it, we get a yes or a no vote. So I would, you know, my counsel to all of our fellow gun owners is if you have any quibbles, put them aside because a yes vote will make it so much more difficult for Bloomberg and his cronies to roll in here and ban 
assault weapons, ban high cap magazines, overturn preemption, you name it. One gun a month, universal background checks, red flag, all these things could be ensconced in our constitution at the whim of multi-billionaires. And we just can't compete with that. If anything, I've been describing issue one as it levels the playing field. It gives us a fighting chance. So no matter how you feel about the, the various specifics of issue one, in the end, the, 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 the benefits are so much higher. And it's just the right thing to do. And so, Dean, you mentioned three ways to vote. You can show up on August 8th, vote the old-fashioned way. That's typically how I like to vote. You can request an absentee ballot and mail it back in right through the Secretary of State's website. Or you can go to your local county board of elections and walk right in and vote in person. They actually post their hours so you know when you can show up and do that. No matter which way you go, we just have to show up. Because what happens after this, the world could be a whole lot better for us. Or it could be you know, a whole lot more difficult with fighting off these different actions that come at us if we don't take these steps to protect our constitution. So get out and vote and get all your friends and family to get out and vote. Again, this is a get out the vote election. This is not about persuading people. It's about getting all of our folks to actually vote. We need votes. So if you're going to go carpool with somebody, take some relatives, take some friends, mention this on your uh, social uh, media site if you've got facebook or you use twitter or whatever i know some of our people do that uh you you really got to encourage you got to work with us here we're doing a lot we, we've uh, helped another organization get 110 barn signs up all over ohio we're supporting volunteers that are at gun shows handing out flyers rob you and linda walker just worked with the nra there's going to be a couple of waves of their famous orange postcards coming out to gun owners we're trying to educate people but you know, we're doing all that we can. We need all of you listening to do what you can as well. If you can just get one or two other people to show up and vote yes, that's really going to make a difference if you all do it. So uh, so that's what we have this week. Rob, I uh, appreciate the time you spent with us on this 100th episode of Keeping Bear Radio. You know what? I promise to have you back for the 200th episode. Or, there you go. Or maybe sooner. Uh well, we'll see. But thanks again. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Dean. It was great to be with you, and I really enjoyed the conversation today. That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, go to JoinBFA.org. Use the discount code PODCAST to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.